Hello, this is Liz Taylor of Monash University and sometime co-host. Actually, where is my co-host? I should look him up sometime soon because I know he's got the next semester off. Of This Must Be The Place podcast. And I know I haven't been putting many podcasts out. I'm doing it opportunistically. And this opportunity that I have opportunistically taken to turn into a podcast is that I'm here in Elmore, our place in Elmore, and we have a visitor who is an interesting researcher. And I thought, well, let's hit up Jan for a podcast. So I'm here. You hear a lot of background noises because there's actually me. There's Andrew's over there front of the fireplace let's set the scene it's a toasty country house like in the middle of a beach boy <laughs> <laughs> toasty country house fireplace mm-hmm. is going there's some the lamps yeah. yeah cwa yes. people are drinking mm-hmm. tea there's sarah my sister and juliet my niece who is now 12 and has just cooked a three-course meal for us and it's like nine o'clock at night and Honorary Associate Professor Jan Schurer has arrived on a train from Bendigo on the late train to Elmore. <laughs> so welcome, Jan. How are you? Thank you. Um, I am well. And you enjoyed your visit to Bendigo despite not visiting the Elvis exhibition? I enjoyed my very short three-hour visit to Bendigo. It's yeah. not going to be the only one of this trip. I'll have another visit in Bendigo tomorrow. To on the way back from on Elmore? On the way back, yes. Right. I thought you were going to say you're going to come all the way back again because you liked it so much. You meant it's on the way between here and Melbourne. It's on the way between here and Melbourne. It's, again, purely opportunistic. So, Jan, this is something I didn't write on my notes, but you don't drive cars at all, do you? I've actually never held a driver's license, let's put it that way. Did you decide (laughs) this and then decide to be a transport researcher or you sort of took a stance? Mm, Well, I think the two things co-evolved. There have been times when I was philosophically opposed to driving a car, particularly as a teenager. Mm. But that subsided and it became more of a pragmatic decision, you know? It's like, should I actually spend all the money on learning to drive officially, or should I just spend that money on traveling and other fun things? You have done a lot of traveling, and we'll get to ask you about that, I think. That's probably the one of your defining features, is that you travel a lot, or did, <coughs> do. Well, I've lived nomadically for, on and off for like almost 10 years, eh? When did I move out of Argyle Street? 2013, um, yeah, yeah, nine yep. years. <laughs> I would have said even longer in some nomadic Well, places. yeah, and mm. even before that I was travelling more than the average person. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. true. So now your title is Honorary Associate Professor at RMIT. But let's just start for the listeners who don't know Jan Schurer. You're a transport researcher. Give a, an overview of what are your, well, what's your research focus generally? Yeah. Well, having just spent a week with fellow researchers from other parts of the country. Um, Feeding back to me what I'm actually doing, it's always a good way to actually realize, yes, what am I actually doing? I think my main claim to fame is to have developed an accessibility tool, which is a planning support tool, looking at the performance of public transport networks in their urban context. And it's called SNAMIT, or Spatial Network Analysis for Multimodal Urban Transport Systems. And that's something that um, I've done with my colleague, Professor Kerry Curtis from the University of Melbourne, over the past 15 years, and we've actually applied it to a huge selection of cities around the world. It might be the only accessibility tool of its kind that actually has been applied internationally rather than just to one particular place. And it enables you, SNAMIT enables (coughs) you to compare a transport system before and after Mm -hmm. hypothetical improvement as well. 
Uh, it enables a status quo comparison between cities, mm. looking at yeah which cities are actually performing best and which ones have a bit of catch-up to do or learning to do. And it also enables us to do future scenarios, looking at, yes, how could the public transport network evolve? How can the city evolve? What sort of growth tra trajectories are there? And um, how can these two things support each other to essentially create a city that is more sustainable, that is more public transport oriented? And you get a sort of metric out of it, right? A measurement. Yeah, we've got a number of indicators and we are doing beautiful colorful maps and diagrams do you have you did a sort of coffee table book of it didn't you yeah, did we have a coffee table book called planning for public transport accessibility That's a good, good and we also have a website it's namers.com do you have like a, a league table given do you run this for <laughs> hundreds or lots of cities and say so mm. based on the metric which cities are worst and best yeah which actually are the best cities at the moment i mean the comparison is not always entirely fair mm. because some cities are naturally more suited to good public transport particularly the very compact cities that mm -hmm. we find in in parts of europe and also in asia which have a much higher urban density than um than Australian cities, for example, and also have a longer history of investing in public transport and a more consistent history of investing in public transport. These are all long-term trends we're talking about, and mm -hmm. it's very hard to turn a city around in a short time frame. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't try to get better. So you can measure, you could also have a league table, I guess, of, of which cities have improved a lot. Of Australian and New Zealand cities, mm -hmm. yes, and that is actually quite interesting. Census data has just come out yeah. for 2021 with updating our databases and mm -hmm. um, and I'm having a sense the most positive trends in public transport in Australia and New Zealand we're currently seeing in Sydney and in Auckland. Future. Auckland is doing two things. I'm itching to been. say getting rid of parking requirements but they're doing other stuff well, as well. Well that might also be part of it of <laughs> course and but Auckland has been doing two big things in public transport over the last 10 years. They've actually electrified their rail system as the last large Australasian city to do that. Yeah that does sound pretty and backwards. It's yes it's a bit <laughs> playing catch up, of course, yeah. you know, so in the sense, Auckland started at a very low base, but we realized that it was the worst city for public transport 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. And now it's actually more among the among the best, not on every indicator, but on some. One of the reasons for that is that Auckland actually has, it is a very compact place because it's topographically extremely constrained. It's on an isthmus, it's surrounded by water. Um, it doesn't have a lot of room to grow into outer suburbs it has some of that but um, it's got like islands but yeah it it's basically it's basically peninsulas islands isthmuses there's natural urban growth growth boundaries wherever you look so it's the second densest city after sydney in the Australasian mm -hmm. context and well they did two things they electrified and upgraded their train system to actually create a proper suburban train system which is not so different from what we have in Australian cities but before that they didn't have that and the other thing and that is probably the most innovative is they actually totally redesigned their bus system according to the latest greatest in network planning principles so who convinced them to do that is that an idiotic question um, well I would dare to say they convinced oh, was them. it you? <laughs> I would dare to say they convinced themselves. No, it wasn't me. Um, if there's a name I should put to that, it's probably Jared Walker, who's a public transport consultant uh, mm -hmm. from the United States, who's been doing a lot of work. Uh, there's a blog called humantransit.org where you can read a lot about his work. And he's very much been defining through his work over the years what actually constitutes good public transport mm -hmm. and user-friendly public transport. It's especially, yeah, usable public transport. So they've very much redesigned their entire bus system to follow those principles and 
that has absolutely exploded the patronage, but more importantly, it has also exploded the accessibility. It is now actually possible to travel around Auckland on public transport quite comfortably, and it wasn't like that 10 years ago. It was, it, like I said, it really was the worst system in Australasia. Mm. <coughs> so that, that's a city that's taken on some research principles oh. and applied them, and results what's the case in Sydney is that more like splashing cash around um, or? it certainly is splashing cash around but it's also splashing cash around on the right things mm -hmm. so yes there have been infrastructure expansion you know there have been new train lines new metro lines new tram lines light rail and there have also been some there's also been some bus network reform but the mm. most important thing I mm. guess is that they've actually increased the frequencies Oh, yeah. So before that, you had a lot of train lines that only ran every half hour. You had buses that ran, well, they might have run reasonably frequently on weekdays, but then on weekends it would drop off completely, or in evenings it would drop off completely, and, and they wouldn't connect well with each other. They weren't integrated, still are not perfectly integrated in terms of fares, but um, some of this has actually been resolved, and it's been resolved, resolved by a planning effort, and I think that is, that is really the success by story the of Sydney them, at the moment. By the by the city, Sydney Commission or whatever. Um, Transport for New South Wales, uh -huh. I would probably yeah. put as a responsible agency here. What's the, this is a feature of SNAMETS as I recall, but just generally, what's the sort of minimum threshold at which public transport is considered viable in terms of cover, frequency, temporal mm. coverage? It has to go every half hour? Every, yeah. yeah, well that's obviously a, quite a fluid standard because mm. it depends on what sort of um, what sort of environment you're operating in if you want to come here to Elmore. Um, you're not well, coming we've got, every... <laughs> we've, got, we've got two trains a day, which is obviously <laughs> modest. But, but you know what the politicians it's getting here all of love. Us. It's getting all of us here. <laughs> so it's, um, it's, it's they, not they impossible. They express it in terms of days mm -hmm. when because they, they opened a new station on this line mm -hmm. last year. They said... Oh, yeah. What was it, 18 services a week? Or yes, it's, like <laughs> it's, per, it's per week or per month or per year, and it looks really impressive, yes. Yep. <laughs> well, yeah. anyway, but for example, but, to Bendigo, we've mm. got an hourly service, and mm -hmm. that is actually something that you will also find in a lot of European countries yeah. as a pretty normal standard for regional operations. Mm -hmm. But of course, once you get to a city, an urban setting, where people really want to not just plan their whole day around a particular public transport trip, but basically want to get off and go somewhere and and want to be able to change their mind on their way and and all of mm. that for that actually you need a really frequent service and you need it at ideally at all times of the day and mm. sometimes the night and i would say to make this really work um well 15 minute intervals are the bare minimum it's mm -hmm. better to have 10 minute intervals if you have busy lines then you would actually go beyond that yeah. you would go yeah. to seven and a half minutes five minutes or whatever yeah and so sydney's closed in on this or mm. sort of prioritized this across Very most of the yeah. network mm. yeah and to get to sort of the other side of this that sydney and auckland have improved in not only coverage and patronage i was going to ask is it basically the same thing if you improve accessibility the people just use it more or generally as a principle that holds we've obviously had got other people that have yeah. yeah we've obviously had a pandemic that pretty much threw mm. everything out of the water mm. in that sense and public transport did lose massive patronage mm. particularly during lockdown periods and it hasn't recovered those not in australia at least and we've certainly seen some 
quite um, some quite fundamental changes how people commute. Yeah, mm. that's how true. people organize their lives. I think this whole working from home theme has very much uh, gained grounds during the pandemic, and people's commuting behavior just isn't what it used to be. So we sort of take out yeah. in Sydney, say, a much improved public transport network, and maybe people that use public transport are using it and enjoying it, but it's not reflected directly in patronage because COVID has changed mm-hmm. mode yeah. share so much. Well, obviously, the thing is we don't really have the statistics yet. Mm-hmm. We can always look at the last pre-COVID year, 2019, and it's true that out of this sample, Sydney and Auckland had the greatest patronage gains in the yep. years leading up to the pandemic. Mm. But what is actually happening as a long-term effect from the pandemic is something that's remains to be seen well what i was also getting towards asking is uh well melbourne you you put in your comparison has not improved has melbourne Mm. gone backwards if so how Mm. i wouldn't necessarily say that melbourne has gone backwards but in a way you could say that melbourne has stagnated i I mean melbourne is a fast-growing city and public transport is also growing there's a certain logic to that and first i would say yay that's great but um, we're not really making a transformative change here. We're adding a little bit here and there, you know, every now and then we kind of open a new train station or... Put some more parking improve, at the station. Put some more, <laughs> that makes put some more parking, parking at the station. <laughs> but, and we're kind of improving the frequencies on this mm-hmm. bus route and on that bus route. So there is progress. But I think the main thing that's happening in Melbourne is really, and in other cities of course, is really urban intensification. So basically we're packing a lot more people and jobs mm-hmm. around our existing public transport network. And mm-hmm. that obviously also boosts patronage. But it's down, not been backed up with a, a commensurate increase in services. Yes, you could, you could generally, with some exceptions mm-hmm. of course, but you could generally say that. Um, now mm-hmm. we've got some projects in the pipeline of course, We've got mm. the Melbourne Metro 1 tunnel that's mm-hmm. being open in three years' time. But I should say that other Australian cities do similar things. Sydney is building a new tunnel through the centre. Brisbane is building a new rail tunnel through the centre. Even Auckland is doing that to improve its system even more. In that sense, Melbourne doesn't really stand out as being particularly innovative compared to our neighbours. It's mm. just doing what everyone else is doing and what everyone else needs to do, by all means. It's this capacity lift of public transport, and particularly the rail system, is absolutely necessary in a fast-growing city but it's not it's not enough and it's not transformative certainly well it obviously ties up a lot of investments resources Mm. and there's follow follow follow-on projects after that we've got the suburban rail link which is probably going to be the next big rail infrastructure project and that also makes a lot of sense in a lot of ways but again it's going to be hugely expensive that sometimes Mm. sometimes seems to be the point this is a pet peeve of mine. I suppose around the big infrastructure projects, good and bad, is that they're announced and said it's great mm. because it'll cost $100 billion and create X number of jobs, which is like a way of saying we will have busy work for some guys for 20 years. Mm. So that's a good thing. Yeah, but there's also a problem in this because sometimes I feel that public transport policy focuses a little too much on announceables um, in a long term future photo opportunities and on appeals to the vanity of certain decision makers and I believe that that is really a pattern that's partly responsible for the stagnation in, is in that public a very transport Australian, in Melbourne. Is that an Australian and, thing? Well, it might be in a now. It probably happens in a lot of places, but I think it is particularly a Melbourne thing. And if you look at, for example, the, the work of Paul Mees, may he rest in peace, yeah. 
kind of goes back over the past 25 years. He's written a lot of stuff about the privatization drive, for mm. example, in the late 1990s, where public transport was privatized and everyone was thinking this is going to be the solution to everything. Private operators are going to be so wonderful that patronage numbers will go through the roof immediately. And, uh, and it'll all pay for itself because, you know, there's going to be so much fair revenue that uh, the public sector will never have to put another cent into public transport. And of course, we all know that uh, nothing could be <laughs> nothing could have been further from the truth. <laughs> and, um, and, um, and so it's been, there's been this long series of kind of, yeah, jumping on, um, grasping these sorts of panacea solutions that look really good in theory, but then don't quite um, take off in practice. And, and that's a bit of a danger in public transport. And that's also where we have a bit of, as transport researchers and as transport professionals, we have a bit of a task of actually educating the public, educating our decision makers. And that's where accessibility tools like Neyman's come in, for example, because they provide yeah, they provide talking points for people to actually really deeply understand what's going on here in terms of transport and land use planning. <clears throat> Maybe start to see the appeal of policy or practice answers that aren't panaceas and aren't mm. big photo opportunities. Because yeah. you mentioned Auckland. I know you spent the last couple of years in Barcelona. It's another city that mm. had a bus network overall, yes. right? This is often the, mm. the boy oh boy mm. boring answer is like mm. you can improve your bus network yes and it's true it's kind it's something that is usually not seen as very sexy mm. putting up a new timetable um, yeah. changing oh you can at least draw some fancy maps of, of new bus networks and that mm. might look good it might also provide a photo opportunity or fairly impressive before and after comparison but generally it's not something that politicians generally see as particularly sexy but it's effective and um, and at the end of the day, that's what matters, and that's what also drives public transport patronage, and more importantly, it drives the trajectory of a city towards becoming more public transport oriented, to actually making more people confident that public transport is the best way to move around the city, which is really what we want to try to achieve in a uh, world aspiring to greater sustainability. I thought that it was to get people to drive electric cars rather than fossil fuel cars. Well, of course, that's also part of the solution, but electric cars, as we know, <laughs> take take up exactly as much space as They're not an cars. urban solution. <laughs> so they need as much parking, and um, they also tend to cause as many accidents and um, cause as much severance in the urban space. So um, yes, by all means, electrify everything. I'm all for it, but it's not going to solve all our problems, and it's certainly not going to solve the problem between public transport and cars. Yes. Don't need to convince me, but I just thought I'd drop a sarcasm yes. <laughs> reference in there as well. <laughs> so, apart from the continuing work on accessibility metrics and trying to report those to decision makers and policy around public transport. One of the other things I know you're working on is something that could be maybe construed as, as a bit of a panacea or latest thing, mm. but let's hear about your involvement in trackless trams. The trackless what tram. What is, I've got mm. a question here, who, what, where, what, what, when and why. Let's start with what. What is a trackless yeah. tram? What actually is a trackless tram? Basically, a trackless tram is a tram-sized vehicle that does not need tracks. Yeah. <laughs> what is a tram? Well, every Melburnian knows what a tram is, I hope. <laughs> so, 
I hope I hope every Sydney cider mm. and every person from Adelaide or Gold Coast knows it too. <laughs> Perhaps it is. And worth Canberra, it. and you know the number of cities is define what's the difference between a tram and a light rail, for example. Um, well, the boundaries are very fluid there. Mm. <clears throat> Generally, we use the term light rail for something that is more train-like, mm. that is segregated from general traffic, um, that usually runs faster, that sometimes runs with like two coupled vehicles, so it's more, it looks more like a train and is longer, has a greater capacity. And whereas yeah. a tram is something that integrates more with general traffic, also with pedestrians, mm -hmm. so it's actually designed to run a bit slower. More like a street sort <coughs> of... A streetcar, street they call it in the US, yes. Of course. Mm. Now, I have a, a historical factoid to drop in here about terminology, and I did do a podcast about this a couple of years ago. There's a town, it's barely a town, called Kundruk up near... Mm near the Murray there and they have the remnants there of what was called the I think it was the Kundruk to Kerrang or Kundruk to somewhere else in the middle of nowhere tram I, I remember that story I remember reading that story at the time There's something <laughs> Kundruk tram so this was um, the trains the actual heavy rail in the early 20th century and extended up into western Victoria north and west Victoria but they didn't get as far as Kundruk and some other places and they wanted to be connected to the rail, so they built their own, what we might call a train, but it was actually a legal thing apparently at the time. Yeah. Mm. You couldn't call a privately run train a train. You had to call it a tram. Mm. So it just a, it was just a sort of lesser version yeah. of a tra train. But was it actually electric? It was just a diesel, yeah. or possibly mm. even steam. <laughs> well, I know, this <laughs> is a very old-fashioned yes. thing. Yes, they had steam trams at it the was time. Certainly <laughs> well, Horses, yeah. And yeah, and yes, of course. The first trams were horse-driven. Yeah, well, this that goes back a long right. time, like 150 years. <laughs> so, so we're gonna so. Get, we're gonna leave. But the trackless tram. So to okay. get back to that, so the trackless <laughs> tram is it needs no tracks. It also needs no overhead wires because it is battery electric so it mm -hmm. essentially runs on batteries and all you have to do is paint tracks on the road because it has its optical guidance system that recognizes those tracks and then runs along them i'm picturing a cartoon where you remember that guy coyote wally coyote or what was that ostrich yeah. that ran really fast roadrunner <laughs> yeah. that he would roadrunner in his efforts to evade wally coyote would be furiously painting in front of the trackless tram and getting it <laughs> the paint would go off a cliff and it would follow it and then go. So you could... Well, let's, let's hope that is not the trajectory of the trackless tram in Australia. So, <laughs> so let's, let's get back to, though, it runs, it's optically oriented, it's got a battery. The next question, which I assume everyone always gets, is what's the difference between a trackless tram and a bus? Yeah, what is the difference between a trackless tram and, and an a bus? An electric bus, there. You could, of course take the position to say this is just a big bus mm -hmm. a big bus that's kind of jazzed up so it is Technically, larger it than is, average it bus. is a, it is fully electric and it is it has a guideway system and all that yeah you could say that but mm. essentially i think the main issue is here the, is, is the capacity and the performance the capacity is similar to a tram because the vehicles are the same size as a tram and the performance of course depends on how you actually integrate it into the traffic management system and I mentioned the differences between tram and light rail, um, you would obviously opt for something that is more like a light rail that actually has its own reservation. So its own lanes kind of protected from intrusions by cars yeah. and trucks and so on to actually make sure it has the level of priority over general traffic that allows it to 
run at a particular speed and to offer the kind of level of service that you'd expect from what we call a medium capacity transit system. So trackless trams, conventional trams, large rail, also monorails and stuff we call medium capacity transit systems mm. between the low capacity of buses and the high capacity of trains. So what would be my next one on this? So it's more than a bus. It's slightly less than a tram in a way, less infrastructure than a tram. So where are they putting in trackless trams mm -hmm. and why? Well, the answer to the first, first question is uh, up to now, not yet. We're mm -hmm. working on it. Uh, at mm. this point in time, trackless trams are actually illegal to run in Australia. But they run they in other not, countries, right? They are not yet. They're running, well, they're running mm. in China, but there's also other types of well, I'd say rubber tire trams that run in some also in China and also in some European countries, Latin America. There's been a number of experiments in that field. There's also a number of vehicles that are closer to buses than the trackless tram. So basically just large buses, but not necessarily with all the electrical infrastructure or the guidance technology, but trying mm. to kind of jazz up the bus system. So Brisbane, for example, is now on its bus busway system, which it built for conventional buses. They're actually now putting in what they call the Brisbane Metro, <laughs> which is not really a metro, it is essentially double articulated buses, which mm -hmm. have a higher capacity than normal buses, and which will run exclusively on these bus lanes. Mm -hmm. So it is a high speed, medium capacity transit system that is going to improve the performance of these infrastructures. But the trackless tram in a way is, goes, goes one step beyond that because it also behaves like a tram. For example, it's bi-directional. Mm. So it doesn't have to go around in a circle at the terminus. It can just go in and, and go out again. And it also has technology, vehicle technology, that is more ammunition of a train than of a bus. And that means it runs a lot more smoothly than um, than a bus would. And why is it illegal in Australia? Well, basically because we haven't had them yet and they need to be certified for Australian road rules. Mm. And that is a process that has only just started and we don't quite know how long it takes, but uh, it's definitely something that needs to happen before we can actually think about introducing them to Australian cities. Have any parts, Australian cities or local governments been I know yeah, that Wyndham was... We're currently working with a number of local governments in Western Australia, in Victoria, in New South Wales, in Queensland. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of interest and there is, it's, it's obvious, there is a lot of interest because in our fast growing cities we actually have a lot of corridors that have the density or have the have the potential for the density and the and the location the geography for supporting medium density transit but are currently operated by buses which are struggling to cope with the well with the existing demand but also with the possibility to actually intensify these places as fast growing cities we actually need to find ways to put more of our urban growth inward, you know, to not kind of create more and more outer suburbs, but actually consolidate the existing areas. And to do that, you actually need better public transport. It's not something that buses can cope with. And so the idea is, and this also works exquisitely well with conventional trams or large rail, um, to actually encourage developers to intensify corridors around these infrastructures. Around the trackless tram routes? Is there a, a fair bit of fanfare about them and then, um, like, there's excitement? 
probably yeah. because well i guess you mentioned you mentioned earlier is this the next big shiny thing <laughs> the next thing that's being advertised as a panacea solving all our problems with public transport and urban development and i'm all just to clarify i'm yes. all for anything that draws attention to mm -hmm. public transport mm -hmm. whether you're just yeah. painting mm -hmm. it or whatever but yeah no absolutely it is look, a risk um, that it's a sort of we'll go into that mm -hmm. trough of uh, yeah. disappointment yes there is yeah. the, the hype cycle that mm -hmm. goes into yes and as a transport researcher i actually see my role a bit to kind of mitigate both ends of the hype cycle, mm. cycle. You know, I basically want to be a critical voice when everyone's just over-enthusiastic about it and essentially also point at the limitations. But at the same time, I'm also countering voices that are saying, no, this is just a, this is just a fake, this mm -hmm. is just a hype, this is just nothing. And, um, and, and it's, it's, I, think, I think it has potential in Australian cities. But it does not have potential just everywhere. We've kind of been looking over the last week, we've been looking at some cases in Melbourne, for example, and, uh, and the pattern is it makes a lot more sense in outer suburbs than in inner Melbourne. Hmm. And the reason for that is the main advantage uh, for building a trackless tram instead of a conventional tram or large rail is that the routes are just much cheaper to build, much cheaper to roll out because um, you don't have to lay tracks. You can essentially just change the layout of existing roads and, and basically have them running also usually faster than uh, or in a shorter time frame than conventional light rail. So the construction period is shorter. So and in a new place then you, you have that sort of blank sleep. The other big cost factor of course is the vehicles, the vehicles and the depots and that's they're actually much more equal between conventional trams and trackless trams. How much Essentially, roughly do they cost? Well, I'm just going by the trams that uh, Victoria has actually bought this year. They signed a contract for 100 new trams, including uh, a maintenance contract for those trams and including a new, new depot for those trams in Maidstone. And mm -hmm. that contract was for 18, no, 1.85 billion, so 18 and a half million per tram, including Ooh. these, including these extras. So yes, these things are not cheap and there's not really any major reason to assume that trackless trams are going to be any cheaper. So essentially where you've got a situation where you've got long distances, long routes, which you need to build, but relatively normal frequencies i'd say i don't say low frequencies because we wouldn't do it for low frequencies but say every 10 minutes that's where a trackless tram has a huge cost advantage over a conventional tram but where you've got a situation where they actually have to run more frequently because it's a super intense air and in, yeah intensifying area and where the routes are relatively short and where you can easily make a connection to the existing tram network in melbourne that's where the cost of the vehicles become the greatest, yeah, the greatest factor of difference. And that's if you can actually draw on the existing resources of the tram network in Melbourne, which already has, has 500 vehicles and which already has a lot of depots and is building more and is getting more vehicles, then the cost of the, the additional cost or the marginal cost of the trackless tram vehicles would actually make the trackless tram less viable than conventional trams. So there's no hard and fast answer it's really very very case and context specific would a trackless tram happen to work in a regional center like 
Bendigo, wow, where that's... I might add, they ripped up all their tram tracks mm. in the 1970s, except one of the, a mm. tourist tram yes, that goes. Yes, and a lot of a lot of cities did that, including mm. every large city outside Melbourne in Australia. Yeah. So, um, so in mm. a sense, it's also about bringing back a bringing back a legacy, which places like Sydney are doing at enormous cost and it's at a relatively short slow pace. It's interesting you mentioned that because we were actually talking about that uh, last week. There's Commonwealth Games coming. Bendigo and in, other places. In regional yeah. cities in Victoria. Mm. So why not have trackless trams doing the connections between train station, uh, games venues and and athletes villages. And yeah. this might not even be something that has to be put in for good, you know, it could be something that could be put in just for the duration of the games as a showcase. Yeah, everyone likes but, those. But of course it could also be something that cities then want to keep. That's a good idea. Mm. It's Paris. I feel like I'm in a sarcastic mood um, because my inclination then was to I'm, say, I like am, the Sydney monorail <laughs> that they had it after the World Expo well, or that's, something. Well, that's, that's the example I actually mentioned in some <laughs> of the discussions we had last week. You know, it's like mm. this kind of uh, this kind of technology that get, gets absolutely hyped up, but is totally seen out of context. Yeah. Um, so and the Sydney monorail, which was built in the 1990s, I think, mm. was a really good example for that. It was something that I don't even know how it actually came about. Well, this some was kind before of exhibition. My time. Ex- ex- <laughs> yeah. I, 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 I thought you were going to name every other town on that list, but I couldn't remember. No, you're not <laughs> a you're not a monorail kind of town. It's more of a. Mm. What's their art in Nemesis Town? Mm. Oh, it's more of a Shelbyville kind of thing. Mm. I think it was built for an exhibition, 1988 World Exhibition or something like that. Mm. And in that context, like I think it was, yeah, people can write in and say we're wrong, but it was yeah. it was there mm. to shuttle people around an exhibition, and then it was kept for a while mm. out of. Yeah. It was actually kept for something like 20 years or yeah, more, yeah. and. Uh, it was quite, it's quite, quite an interesting story. Well, the story, I don't know where it came from, but I do know that later on there was a common operator for Sydney's first light rail line mm. and that monorail. <laughs> and eventually the light rail line was extended and integrated into the normal public transport network and mm-hmm. the monorail was not and it was eventually closed and dismantled. Yeah. And Where's I it think gone now? It's gone somewhere funny, hasn't it? I think they sold it somewhere, didn't they? Probably to a theme park. Yes, maybe that's maybe where, that was it. Maybe yeah. that's where these things belong. But yeah. but this is also really, it kind of tells us a story about if we actually think of public transport, urban public transport as a theme park, basically not getting anywhere. Mm. And we really need to think integration, integration into existing networks, integration into the existing urban fabric and that's where the monorail failed in Sydney but where the light rail actually eventually succeeded. To avoid a similar fate for the trackless tram I think it is really important to focus our efforts on introducing trackless trams on the most promising routes yeah. and those I currently see in the outer suburbs yeah. rather than the inner suburbs of, of cities like Melbourne. And maybe there's a demonstration. It's right different in Bendigo of course. But Bendigo <laughs> I might add is I, I'm mm. not saying that they would work here at all but um I think that idea of having a demonstration trackless tram totally makes sense. And it's worth adding to that conversation that the suburbs of Bendigo are growing like mm. breakneck speed. In between here and Elmore, um, mm. just, you know, it's like the old fashioned version of a suburb. It's yeah. just sort of like paddock. Well, I saw paddocks. you open a new train station since I last came here. And there's another one on and the way. And another one on the way. Yeah. <laughs> and these are premised here. on, mm. on um, commuter growth on mm. new suburbs, which is good in a way, mm. but also mm. like, 
yeah, things are, things are changing here pretty fast as well. Not mm. necessarily at the same scale as places like mm. uh, Sydney or Melbourne or whatever, but it is comparative to the size of the place. And yeah. yeah, but I think it's there's also a really interesting aspect here. As cities grow, they kind of pass certain thresholds. Mm-hmm. And we're working in the in Queensland, for example, with the Gold Coast and the Sunshine Coast. Mm. And both now medium-sized cities and um, yeah, Gold Coast having passed the half million mark. And they have a light rail, they also have a heavy rail. And when I visited two months ago, I felt like, yeah, this place is actually starting to really orient itself around public transport. I felt that when and there was the SOAT conference there a couple yeah, of years even, ago. Yeah, yeah, even then. And mm. that is obviously a new thing. And sometimes, look, I'm not an expert on Queensland and mm. I don't know these places terribly well, mm. or at least not historically. But uh, when I look at the Sunshine Coast, I sometimes feel this is where the Gold Coast was at 20 years ago. Yeah. yeah. And in its, not in its general character, um, people in the Sunshine Coast will probably kill me for saying that <laughs> it's gonna be like the Gold Coast in 20 years time. <laughs> but um, but in, its, in its growth trajectory and the size that the city has and also where it's going. So part of our work at the moment is actually to bring better public transport to the Sunshine Coast or to bring public transport worth its name there for the first time because currently they only have buses and they have a, they have a train line 20 kilometers inland which doesn't really do anything to the main settlement corridor along the coast. And they don't see themselves as a city. two points one is that you've been sort of based in or partly based in Australia for how long now 20 years 25 um, well I first came here in 97 that's 25 years isn't it right. yes so you first came mm-hmm. here in 1997 and for the last two years you've been forced hiatus from Australia due to COVID border closures could you offer any comments on that interface between being German living in Europe and coming to Australia what could we learn from Europe what should we learn in terms of transport what's never going to transfer kind of thing did you arrive here for example in 1997 and say where the fuck is the train where where am I and where how can I get anywhere or we, uh, did you know what was coming? I obviously thought about it and <laughs> I was actually not moving to Melbourne at the time, I was moving to Perth, mm. which I think at the time was actually still trying to lure people from the eastern states by saying, look, we're a congestion-free city, we're built for cars, isn't it wonderful? <laughs> <laughs> and I was seriously thinking um, my kind of reluctance to get myself into this uh, car, into car driving habits might actually have to change yeah. coming to Perth. But I realized pretty quickly... The really interesting things you can do without a car, even in Perth. It had, even at the time, it actually had a good train network. Still does. It's grown since, Mm. and it's growing more. And um, it's got a lovely climate for cycling. That's true. When it's not too hot or too windy, which it sometimes is. For listeners, Jan once rode. I couldn't tell you how many places he's rode his bike, but (laughs) I tend to think of. Jan riding the length of Baja California, I'm pretty sure, on your bike. It wasn't the length, it was just the southern tip. (laughs) (laughs) It was too deserty for me to do the whole length. Certainly lots of long bike trips, so (laughs) your your make-do on the bike Mm, front. And um, 
that was a very truncated way of answering. You may do even in Perth. You sort of find a way mm. in other Australian cities. But in the last couple of years, is it a shock to be spending all this time in Barcelona where things are, it is easier to get around in Barcelona and come back here and remember what it's like? Or well, it's, sort of it's true that living in Barcelona, you often spend extended periods of time not even thinking about cars. Mm. You see them occasionally, but you can even avoid them. You know what's really places. a sad thing and you've uh, highlighted, mm. Jan, is that as transport researchers, and I would count myself amongst them, at least partly, you spend a lot of time thinking about cars, and they're like the worst thing in transport, but your life is dominated by them, so you turn into this... Mm. <laughs> It's like a sickness. You just think about cars all the time and then you go out. Mm. I walk down the street and I just get so mad at cars and like they're every so anyway, you're in Barcelona. Yeah, it can happen. You don't but have yeah, this. that's the thing in Barcelona you can really sometimes ignore. Not always, you know, it's mm. not like Barcelona was a car free city. You know, of course there's lots of cars too, but mm. there's different priorities here. There's every year there's projects to kind of take road space away from cars in the inner city and return it to pedestrians, to cyclists, mm. to public transport. You can see that happening at a faster pace than than in Australian cities. It some of mm. it is happening here too, of course. But and I think that would really be my message to Australia, you know, you know, dare to be a public transport city, dare to be an active transport city. That kind of traje trajectory is viable. Um, we're not, we don't need to feel that cars are holding us ransom. And of course, it's not a revolution that can happen in a really short time frame in a couple of years or so. It's a really long term process, but uh, I could basically just say, let's keep doing it as much as we can. and. The outcome is a more livable and more sustainable city. And what's wrong about that? It could be a rhetorical question. What's wrong with that? <laughs> I'm about to get wound up. I can't think mm. of it. Well, my main like take on things like this is easier to ask forgiveness than permission. So in Australia, to ask permission for something that's like demoting cars, it brings all a, a whole bag of fears about stuff that mm. might happen. So I go, oh, okay. that was okay. So you reckon we should just do it and well, and then ask for forgiveness from those who disagree? <laughs> sometimes it, when there's, I mean, if we look at a lot of the public transport that was built, they just built it. Mm. They didn't say how great it was. They just did it. So we. We have a situation where you have to say how awesome this thing will be, but you don't have to say that about cars. Elmore, what can we say about? We got the we got the mini rail from town <laughs> to our house yes. today. Okay, it that's true. Really no, we but it is like a medium capacity <laughs> no, public transport. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And they joked that they were the freight line. Yeah, they no. said we're, we're doing freight transit today. Yeah. It was, it was really yeah. No, but I think what, what I would say about Elmo and what I would say about you being here in Elmo and which has always impressed me is that when you first moved to this place, got this place, when was it, 15 years ago or something yep. like that or even longer? It was 15 years ago. You basically it? made this point, hey, we actually want a place that has a rail connection so we don't depend on cars to get here and also a place where you can basically do everything locally by walking. I think that is something that Elmo and similar towns in regional Australia actually still do mm -hmm. really well. It is um, a little bit like a little inner city. I mean, maybe it's insulting small mm. town people, but to me they're the same. That's why I've always liked the middle of the city and places like Elmore mm. is that I don't have to drive. Yeah. I exactly. just walk I mean, everywhere. I mean, it's all, and, and these are, these are, I think these are two really important aspects that uh, you can do lots of things locally on foot and you have some connections to other places. I mean, obviously, everything that the two trains per day can't do, you will have to do with a car beyond the walking range. That's that's obvious. But uh, but I think it's still quite important to see these advantages, and it, and it means in a way that that the car is not 
the first choice for everything. It is one out of many choices. And pretty low on Several choices, and that is, I think, that is to me um, an aspect of small town sustainability, if you like. That's a good good uh, point to wind up on, Jan. Thank you to honorary associate professor Jan Schura of RMIT, and. Uh, you mentioned that you have a website for Snameth. What's that? Snameth.com. It just talks a bit about the tool and it's also a bit of a repository for uh, public transport accessibility maps from 25 different cities or something. And uh, it's probably not entirely up to date at the moment, but I promise once all the Australian census data is out by October, we will actually update it hugely. And every Australian city will have beautiful updated maps for including for 2021 um, which I think we also put on the Oren side oh, which yeah. is currently being remodeled, yeah. remodeled and so we'll also look into that but soon after the second batch of census data comes out so probably by the end of the year we hope to have um, all the Australian and New Zealand data in top shape all the metrics so for transport buffs out there students etc this is where you go to and also for my planning students who inevitably if they want to write anything about transport they either cite Jago Dodson or the Snameth's model that's where you go do that when I want it <laughs> thanks again Jan and now we can get back to casually talking oh you've been listening to this must be the place uh, speak soon hopefully I'll track down David this semester